What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Relinda Speaks podcast. We're back with a brand new episode. What's up, fam? What a week. What a week. There's so much going on in the world. So much pain and sadness and tragedy all around us. And I think we're in this space of trying to process and make sense of it all. And yeah, that that takes a lot and it takes a toll on us because we're trying to make sense of things that are happening around us in different parts of the world and right in our backyard that is unconscionable and unimaginable and are some challenges that we never thought that we would perhaps see in our lifetime. And so I want to say to that first that we need to acknowledge our feelings and where we're at and um, really take a moment to pause and really think about how we're managing through these unprecedented times and really give ourselves permission to feel what we need to feel. And also, if we can't get everything that we're supposed to get done in our given day, it's okay. If we can't get to that to-do list, whatever it entails, guess what? We're all going to be okay. These are unprecedented times. There is no, let's try to get to normal. There is no normal. It's over. It's done. There is no normal. And so let's allow ourselves to feel what we have to feel, acknowledge the feeling of loss, grief, depression, whatever that is, let's acknowledge that and then find ways to heal ourselves. And that will look different for all of us. But the importance of that awareness that it's okay to not be okay, because in this moment in time, we shouldn't be okay. That's the point. In this moment in time, with everything that's going on around us, we should not be okay. So why are we attempting to force a narrative that actually is not legitimate? It's not a legitimate response to what's happening around us. We have the tragedy in Beirut. We have an upcoming election. We have children, a generation of learners who are unable to be at school. And the issue is being politicized in many ways. We are in two pandemics. We are in the pandemic known as COVID-19. And we are also in a pandemic of racism, which is a public health crisis. So there is no normal. And so let's not try to fit our response to what's happening in a neat little box of just, you know, okay, when we get back to normal, we are forever changed. And we need to start responding and activating ourselves 
accordingly. So feel what you have to feel, acknowledge it, take moments to pause, to figure out what that means for you, what you need to do to take care of you in those moments. And it's a practice. And little by little, we get better at how we respond, but also the work that we still need to do. Okay, so let's get into it today. I first want to break down some terms. The first term is anti-blackness. That term has come up in the last uh, few weeks where people were like, what is anti-blackness? What does that mean? And so I want to give some context around the term anti-blackness because we use that word in diversity, equity, and inclusion work and thinking about anti-oppression, anti-racist work. Anti-blackness defined is a specific type of racism, prejudice, and discrimination that is rooted in enslavement. It's a system of beliefs and practices that attack, erode, and limit the humanity of Black people. It can be articulated in many ways, but the idea is that it is specifically directed towards Black people, people from the African diaspora that that identify as Black And we see anti-blackness show up in so many ways. And so that's why it's really important. I've been I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've been really talking about this idea of when we use words to describe events, to describe, you know, specific racism, we really need to be intentional about the words that we use. So when we're talking about anti-blackness, we know that that's, again, right, a particular set of systems, beliefs, and practices that attack, erode, and limit the humanity of Black people. So in that instance, when we're talking about anti-blackness, We wouldn't use the word people of color or BIPOC. When we are specifically talking about anti-blackness, we need to call it out and call it for what it is, as opposed to using these umbrellas that generally group people together who might have similar or shared experience. But I think in this particular moment, as we look to challenge systems, to disrupt systems, to dismantle systems, it's really important that we name things for what they are and really get um, comfortable in our use of the words. Let's get comfortable with naming things and using the proper language. To give an example of um, anti-blackness, if if someone needs an example, let's think about the Crown Act. The Crown Act was created in 2019. Yes, y'all, you heard me right. 2019, the Crown Act was created to ensure protection against discrimination based on race-based hairstyles by extending statutory protection to hair texture and protective styles such as braids, locks, twists, and knots in the workplace 
and public schools. And so it's extended beyond those two workplace and public schools. And again, this idea that is rooted in anti-blackness. It was a policy that had to be put in place. And again, it hasn't been adopted yet by all 50 states. There's still activism happening to ensure that the Crown Act is on the books in every state. Um, But this idea of it was rooted in anti-Blackness because it was targeting a specific group, race-based, right? And the particular hairstyles, braids, locks, twists, and knots, are styles that are worn by Black women, and in some cases, Black men. And so that's an example of anti-Blackness. So we really want to move away from these headings as people of color. There are moments where that would be appropriate to use. But in some situations, we really need to be intentional and deliberate about how we categorize the racism that we see happening. I want to bring the conversation of the Black App pages to the Relinda Speaks podcast. So if you're unfamiliar with Black App pages, it's a movement using social media, specifically Instagram, to document the lived experiences of Black students and Black alumni at private independent schools. And so these Black App pages popped up in the wake of the call for racial justice after what we saw happen to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, young people, Black alums, and Black students tell their truth using the platform to bring attention to the racial discrimination, racial inequities, and racial injustice that happened to them during their tenure as students at these elite institutions that are majority white, where on average, the black student population represents 5% or less than. And it's been such a a tumultuous time because the black alums that have brought these stories to the surface for everyone to see and read, they are painful, they are excruciating, but their efforts have allowed for their stories to come out of the shadows, for their voices to be heard, and the demand for accountability from their institutions. I'm beyond proud of the Black alums that have really stepped up to hold their institutions accountable. It's an act of radical love. And I say that because it's so painful to relive painful moments of your childhood. And we all can think back to a moment where it was painful, something happened, and we suppress it, and we go on with our day, with our lives, and we try to move on. 
But there are moments where it hits us and it hits us like a ton of bricks because it is something that still eats at us and is detrimental to our healing and growth. And so that's what we're seeing right now is this moment of reckoning, as we as I keep saying, this moment of reckoning, but a reckoning for private independent schools. And what I've also noticed, because as I research this, what I also notice is that those who have initiated these Black Gap pages are largely Black women. And that doesn't surprise me. That doesn't come as a shock to me. Black women are always at the forefront of uh, social justice movements and fighting for racial justice and liberation. But I'll also add, anti-Blackness is also intersectional. Those most vulnerable are Black girls and women. And so giving the example of the Crown Act earlier, anti-Blackness hits us differently. It's detrimental for all of us as a part of the Black diaspora. But in particular, we must note the additional challenges and discrimination and racism that is directed at Black women. And so when I see that young Black women are leading the charge with these Black app pages, there's connectivity there. And so I want to highlight that. And so LA Times just did an expose on the Black app pages um, here in Los Angeles. Um, The New York Times had covered um, many of the schools um, in New York, but L.A. Times. And so I was quoted in the L.A. Times um, to share my expertise and my experiences and and what I thought about this, the black app pages. And so you can go and read the article. um, But, you know, to sum up what I said Um, I express that the Black App Pages is the most authentic racial data and audit that a school would ever receive. The Black App Pages give information not only about social experiences, the day-to-day what the experience was as a Black student at a predominantly white institution. It also delves into the lack of visibility in the curriculum. It also speaks to the lack of visibility in leadership opportunities, the lack of visibility in seeing Black teachers um, that you can see as mentors, and just to see faces that look like you and, and represent who you are, and also speak to the lack of visibility about seeing other Black students. Um, The Black App pages detail accounts of experiences in history classes and being one of two, or in many cases, the only student. And when there are conversations around enslavement, what that feels like and that burden of representation and that shouldn't be on a student to have to navigate it should be on the adult in terms of how they're framing that conversation so it's the most authentic racial data and audit that a school will receive
and they received it for free, might I add, right? Because schools, companies will spend thousands of dollars to get data, to do climate assessments, to do climate surveys. You have all the information you need and it was given to you for free. What a gift. And now it's on these institutions to think deeply and think critically about what they're going to do with the information. What are you going to do to hold yourselves accountable? And I think that something that's really vital in this moment is the accountability. What are you going to do to hold yourselves accountable so that three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, when there is another call for stories and experiences do we want them to mirror what is present on these black app pages and my prediction is that the black app pages they at this point have documented past experiences but for the black students that are at these schools now these pages are going to become living documents in the present because it is going to document what is currently happening. And so that's why this is an even more pressing issue about building accountability measures, about building safety for Black students and creating a truly inclusive and equitable environment. So... That's the Black App pages. This conversation will continue. And I just want to share how incredibly proud I am of the young Black women across the country who have put themselves in the line of fire to call attention to the insidious and pervasive racism that they experience while students at their private independent schools, them wanting to call attention to it will help, undoubtedly help, the next generation of students who are attending these schools. And that's the act of radical love because it's much easier to look away and to not want to fight because then you don't have to bring up all of this pain. They are bringing up this pain because they want to make it better for who's coming after them. That is thinking about the collective, not about the individual. And if we could start doing more of that as a society, imagine the possibilities. For far too long, the stories and experiences of Black people in this particular instance at schools, but within our criminal justice system, within our government, within housing, within corporate America, has been the silencing, the muting, and erasure of Black stories. 
and this idea that the racism that was being experienced was somehow a figment of a black person's imagination, that we were the ones that were hypersensitive and we were making these issues be about race, as opposed to saying, oh, no, it is race. It is about race. And what's happening in this system, this system that is predominantly white, mostly white, um, the system of independent schools in particular, when we think about they were created, they were created to be exclusive by design. They were only for white people. That's a fact. When we even think about most independent schools, most private schools were incepted after Brown v. Board because schools didn't want to have to desegregate. So they said, let's create our own schools because then we don't have to follow the law of the land. And so with these private independent schools, they were created by design to be exclusive institutions, to only be for white people. And so now you're in this moment of schools in the late 80s, early 90s saying, oh, we value diversity. We want to have black students. We want to have other students of color at our institutions. But they never reconciled the system of that exclusivity. So that's why there's a disconnect when there are diversity initiatives that are in place because there never was the acknowledgement of this was built on a racist ideology and racist system that said only these students from this background can be at these schools. And so I noticed that as we are having these conversations around the Black App pages, that's the elephant in the room that we're still not talking about. We're still not talking about the system in which these schools were founded and built upon. We're still just talking about the Black App, the Black App, but we're not talking about the White App, the White Institution, the White Foundation, though the the environment that's set up to where these stories could actually happen and continue to happen. And what's so interesting about these stories as I've been researching is that the same things that happened 10 years ago are the same things that graduates of the class of 2020, 10 years later, are still talking about. Thank you to the Black alums for fighting the good fight, for stepping up, for having courage, for sharing with such bravery and honesty your story. And thank you for fighting for the next generation of students that you don't even know. You just know that you refuse to have them experience what you experienced. And that's truly important. And I want to acknowledge it and thank you. And I hope that these institutions can really dig deep.
And this is moving beyond statements of awareness, statements of acknowledgement, but apologies and accountability and a willingness to get rid of your dead weight, a willingness to lose something. What will you lose for change? What will you give up for change? How will you be bold for change? When we take care of the most vulnerable, in turn, we take care of everyone. When we build systems of fairness and equity that take care of the most vulnerable, we in turn take care of everyone else. This is deeply rooted in anti-racist and anti-oppression work. And at the Black At, clearly our Black alums who endured so much during their time. And I'm thinking about all the Black students who are left right now in these institutions. And I wonder, how are they being supported How are they being uplifted? Are measures being put in place to ensure that they are protected? So when we can create systems that protect our most vulnerable, we in turn take care of everyone else. So we got to up the ante. So in your own life, how are you upping the ante? To protect the most vulnerable. What are you willing to give up? I can't emphasize that enough. What are you willing to lose? This is not a time to prioritize white fragility and white comfort. That's for all of us, regardless of how you identify. This is not a time. So white people, this is not a time to prioritize fragility and comfort. It's a time to be uncomfortable. Because if we're not uncomfortable, if we're not willing to face what the real deal is, what's happening, we're going to be more uncomfortable when it plays out. It plays out in ways where it's much more difficult for us to figure out our next steps. We're here in this moment. Don't squander this opportunity because you're prioritizing white fragility and comfort. This is a movement, not a moment. How will you up the ante that plants the seeds for justice today, tomorrow, and for the future. What seeds are you planting? What will you harvest? And who will benefit? I'll leave you with that today. Keep planting. And I hope you plant something that makes a real change in our school communities and in society as a whole. All right, y'all. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. 
As always, hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Relinda Speaks. Hit that subscribe button on the podcast. Leave me a review. I want to know what you're thinking. Take care. Be well. I'll see you next time. Bye.